Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In this week's podcast, we've selected key topics of interest in multiple myeloma, where you will hear directly from leading experts in the field. First, you'll hear from Mohamed Moti, who discusses unanswered questions regarding the sequencing of BCMA targeting therapies in multiple myeloma. We're living today a really fascinating era when it comes to the advent of immune therapies in uh, multiple myeloma. And these anti-BCMA-directed uh, or targeted therapies, whether bispecific antibodies, whether CAR T-cells, whether antibody drug conjugates, are really making a huge difference in the life of many patients. And they are providing life-saving options to patients who actually uh, have no other option. So this is good news. The most complicated story in this field is how I'm going to sequence these different options. Because the target is the same, but the tool is different. And we know that it's not only about the uh, sequence, but we have also to include, in my opinion, the patient preference. So for instance, CAR T cells are used as a sort of a single shot treatment. So definitely patients do prefer them. Obviously they are not available everywhere. So you can see already one answer to the question, should I start first with CAR T cell or Y specific? Well, if they are available and if the patient can wait until you get your CAR T cells ready because we know that we may need a few weeks before your CAR T cell product is available and ready to be infused. And sometimes you have an aggressive uh, relapse refractory myeloma and you can't wait. So this is important. So from a, I would say, patient preference, it looks like giving CAR T cells could be a preferred option. But beyond patient preference, based on the available data, and obviously this is, I would say, observational because we don't have like prospective controlled data, it looks like that the efficacy of the bispecific, anti-BCMA bispecific, after CAR T cells, they work well. Whereas if you start with the bispecific antibodies, then it looks like the efficacy of CAR T cells is a little bit more problematic. But probably things will change if, for instance, you collect your T cells very early in the course of the disease. And now also we know that CAR T cells are moving earlier in the lines of therapies. So you can see it's a very complex equation with different parameters. I don't believe we have the right or wrong answer for this. And in addition, it's even more complex when you consider other targets because we do have uh, bispecific antibodies against other targets like GPRC5D, like FCRH5. 
There are also, other than a commercially available CAR T-cells, again, GPRC5D. You can also have dual CAR T-cells. And then you would imagine that in the landscape, uh, putting all of these pieces of the puzzle together can be a little bit complicated. But I'm sure with the wider availability and the broader use of these agents, we will learn and probably we will get a sort of a idea uh, what to do first and how to sequence them. I'm quite confident because this is really a crucial question because at the end of the day, it's about finding uh, the right combination and sequence that would allow to prolong survival, but also to minimize the side effects and uh, improve the quality of life uh, of the patient. So I must confess, we have more questions than answers, but this is why it is fascinating era. Next, Bruno Paiva highlights the prognostic value of circulating tumor cells in multiple myeloma. It was really our great pleasure to contribute recently for the recertification of myeloma by showing the value of circulating tumor cells. I think that uh, uh, as scientists working in the laboratory, clinical laboratories, we were in depth with the myeloma community because uh, we hadn't figured out yet how to provide prognostic biomarkers based on direct assessment of tumor burden. You know that tumor burden in the marrow by morphology is a critical component for the differential diagnosis of the different stages of the disease, but it's not itself a strong prognostic factor. And there might be a lot of limitations, patchy bone marrow involvement, uh, uh, poor quality sample, extra medullary disease, which is less frequent in newly diagnosed, but more frequent at later stages. And I believe that instead of looking into the marrow, we look at tumor burden in blood through the assessment of circulating tumor cells with the same assay, NGF, that we have been using for almost one decade for MRD assessment. So it's not overcomplicating, it's just the same assay for a different purpose. We are showing that it's much more valuable. It can, the number of circulating tumor cells or CTCs can probably be a surrogate of tumor burden, disease dissemination in real time, proliferation, niche occupancy, and this might be the reason why it is such a powerful prognostic factor. And not only that, it's a prognostic factor that it's easy to measure, it's blood, with methods that are already available in clinical laboratories and highly reproducible as five independent studies showeth in the year 2022 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And I think that once these requirements are met, strong prognostic value, easy to measure, high reproducibility, then we have found a biomarker that has the potential to be included in the routine staging of patients with newly diagnosed active myeloma. 
Lastly, you will hear from Benjamin Derman, who shares some insights into the growing role of quadruplet therapies in multiple myeloma and gives an overview of clinical trials evaluating these quadruplets presented at the 2023 ASH annual meeting. One of the themes uh, from ASH this year is the, uh, you know, the quadruplets therapies in induction for myeloma, especially newly diagnosed myeloma and where that fits in. You know, before this, really most of the data that we had came from two studies. One was the Cassiopeia study, which was a phase three trial comparing DARA VTD versus VTD in the transplant eligible setting. And then we also had the randomized phase two Griffin trial whose final results were published recently. And one thing that was interesting about the Griffin trial is that, you know, it was designed as a randomized phase two, looking at um, the rate of stringent CR as the primary endpoint at the end of consolidation. And it actually did not meet its primary endpoint. But when you look at the progression-free survival curves of DARA VRD compared to VRD, you see this very prominent um, uh, distinction between the curves where DARA VRD is showing that it is um, statistically superior, associated with superior PFS compared to VRD. And, you know, we, we actually now get confirmation of those results. One of the late breaking abstracts that's going to be presented at ASH or was presented at ASH is um, the Perseus trial looking at DARA VRD versus VRD. And, um, you know, what we, what we are really happy to see is that when you have a primary endpoint of PFS, we see the same thing, right? We see actually almost identical four year or four um four year 48 month pfs with dara vrd which was 84.3 percent versus 67.7 percent with vrd and overall survival is not different um, uh, between the arms which we sort of expect at this point i would call it immature but you know um, one of the interesting things about perseus was that the the vrd schedule was given um, a little bit differently than in griffin so the bortezomib was given twice weekly, but this, the um, cycle was actually a 28-day cycle. So lenalidomide was given in days 1 through 21, and dexamethasone was given um, in two courses, days 1 through 4, and then 9 through 12. But I think the main thing here is that we see that quadruplets really should be here to stay regardless of um, cytogenetic risk. Even the standard risk patients stand to benefit greatly from it. We also have real-world data from Emory. Um, uh, Dr. Joseph in abstract number 647 um, shows that um, with 326 real-world patients treated with DARA-VRD um, within the Emory network, you see also that PFS is already um, superior, associated with superior um, PFS when you get DARA-VRD compared to, to VRD that was done there. And what's interesting about that abstract is that the way that they gave DARA-VRD was four cycles, a transplant, but then following transplant, they got rid of the consolidation piece with four drugs like was done in Griffin. And actually for standard risk patients, just continued lenalidomide. So this was potentially a less aggressive um, or less intensive regimen, and we still see a benefit. So just four cycles of DARA when you add it to VRD may make a huge difference for transplant eligible patients. But we also have a plenary session where we're having ESA KRD versus KRD and EMN24. Um, and we have Dr. Guy who's gonna be presenting that. 
And um, this was four cycles of each regimen sandwiching a transplant. So four of KRD or ESA KRD transplant, and then the same four cycles afterward. And the primary endpoint here was MRD negativity at 10 to the minus five after consolidation. It was done in an intention to treat fashion. And what you can see is that the rate of MRD negativity was in fact superior for um, ESA KRD compared to KRD. Uh, we don't have PFS differences yet. It's only 20 months of follow-up. I think with further follow-up, we may get uh, some more information on that. But I think what this really shows us is that with a weekly carfilzomib, using this intention to treat analysis, we get impressive results, especially on the MRD negativity side, which I think will translate to a PFS benefit. Um, the other interesting abstract that um, looks at the quadruplets is the GEM 2017 FIT study. And this looked at transplant ineligible patients. And um, there were three arms, but one of the arms was Dara KRD for 18 cycles. And then MRD sort of guided the next phase of therapy. Patients who were MRD positive would continue with daratumumab and lenalidomide. And patients who were MRD negative would go on to observation. The median age in the study was actually 72 years old, which is impressive. You know, and that's reflective of the fact that this is probably a truly transplant ineligible population. This was not cherry picked. And a third of the patients were over 75. And you see a very high rate of MRD negativity, not only at 10 to the minus 5, which was 79%, but also at 10 to the minus 6, which was 74%. The PFS, the 18-month PFS, was 87%. And this is where it gets interesting, and I think we're going to need longer follow-up, because that was not different than the KRD arm in this study, which was also 87% for the 18-month PFS. But actually, the 18-month overall survival seemed to be slightly lower for DARA KRD. And this was um, particularly due to infections that occurred. And so some have questioned whether you know, the use of carfilzomib here in older patients might not be such a great idea. And within that context, I wanted to share our abstract, um, which was um, is being presented as a, as a poster um, in its abstract number 4747. And this was Dara KRD for 24 cycles in newly diagnosed myeloma, but we did not um, exclude based on transplant eligibility status. So these were patients that could have been eligible or ineligible for transplant. And um, our Dara KRD schedule was also a little bit different. So for the first uh, nine cycles, patients would get, or first eight cycles, excuse me, um, patients would get uh, twice weekly carfilzomib on days one, two, eight, nine, and 15 and 16. And then for cycles nine through 24, it was uh, every two weeks. So days one, two, and 15, 16. And the primary endpoint of our study was astringent CR and or MRD negativity by NGS at 10 to the minus fifth specifically at the end of cycle eight. And um, in our uh, data set, we had 42 patients that were enrolled. The median age was much younger than some of the other ones I've shared with you, which was 58, the range being 39 to 79. But 57% of our patients had high-risk disease by some account, um, most of which you know, were, were accepted you know, uh, high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, including 24% of patients who had two or more high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. 76% of the patients, or 75% of the patients, met the primary endpoint, which was stringent CR and or MRD negativity at 10 to the minus 5. And, you know, in particular, we did see lower rates of MRD negativity than what I've shared with you, um, you know, in the other studies. At 10 to the minus 6, we had 53% that achieved this rate 
of MRD uh, at 10 to the minus sixth um, as a best response. So, you know, when we look at progression-free survival, though, we see very uh, high numbers here. So the three-year estimated progression-free survival was 85%. Uh, for this study, and the and the three-year overall survival was 95%. In fact, the only two patients that died on the study uh, um, died early from early uh, rapidly progressive disease. And when we look at um, stratified by high-risk cytogenetics, the three-year overall uh, progression-free survival for patients with standard risk or zero high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities was 100%. And it was 92% if you if the patient had one high-risk abnormality, and it was 60% for those with two or more high-risk abnormalities. And this is really key because what I think it's telling us is that quadruplet therapies work really well for patients with zero or one high-risk abnormalities. We see that across the board. But patients who have two or more high-risk abnormalities, we really need to do something better for these patients. I don't think that transplant actually changes things. I think we see the same numbers, whether you continue extended induction, like in this case, or you do a transplant instead. Last thing that I wanted to share about this abstract is that we also included data on mass spectrometry. And um, this is using a peripheral blood test to look at MRD. And we looked at two different methods. One method is called the Exent system. This is both through the binding site. And the other one was called liquid chromatography mass spec. Exent is easy to do. It's automated. Um, it's quick. Uh, LCMS is a little bit more laborious, but it is more sensitive. And what we found in our study is that 64% of patients actually were negative by exempt at some point during the study, and only 31% were negative by LCMS. But here's what's really interesting. When you stratify patients' um, PFS by their mass spec uh, status as a best response, exempt negativity was significantly associated with superior PFS. And LCMS, actually not a single patient with LCMS negativity had disease progression on the study so far. So I think this is going to be a key marker for us to follow as time goes on. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.